welcome listeners back to the Everlasting Stories podcast, brought to you by Sick Semper Serpent Books. I'm your host, Michael Strand. Well, my friends, I hope that you are having a fine day or evening, wherever you are listening to this podcast, because things have been tough lately, and that's what's great about podcasts and fiction. You can just turn them on and float away to somewhere else while you're driving to work or cooking dinner for your family. Whatever it is, I've got you. This week, we return to the world of Detective Luke Miller, this time facing the perilous Puka. This story by D. Zane Davis takes place a few months after the events of our last story, where he defeated the Fire Drake, Dragotch the Terrible. Following the defeat of Dragoch, Luke and his reincarnated goddess partner, Dahlia Harriet, have been cleaning up the magical underbelly of the Twin Cities metro. With Luke's PI skills and Dr. Harriet's magical knowledge, they are a formidable bulwark against the tide of evil threatening to seep into our world through the cracks in reality left by the apocalyptic dragon. What foe will they face this week? You're just going to have to find out here on the podcast. Just a minor content warning. This story is a horror story about a monster that eats people. And so if you have younger kids around, you might not want to listen to this one as it might freak them out. Um, though the kills are a little bit gory, they're also kind of humorous as well and sort of tongue-in-cheek. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there for kids and more sensitive listeners. Well, folks, let's get started. This is Detective Luke Miller and the Perilous Puka by D. Zane Davis. Oh, thank you again so much. Events director Jody Taft fizzed into the August twilight as she, Detective Luke Miller, and special consultant Dr. Dahlia Harriet stood Minnesota goodbying outside of the Wabasha street caves. I mean, without the pair of you to deal with those ogres, Dahlia finished firmly. Ogres, yeah, she repeated gagging on the word. Well, they would have been the end of me and this historic business. It, uh, oh, it was no problem at all, Luke replied, toweling flecks of orc blood from his forearms. They were big ugly buggers, but uh, dumb as dirt clods. Relieved that the beasts were slain, though she may be, Luke's client nonetheless did not share his laissez-faire attitude towards supernatural trespassers. Um, now you're sure that nothing else is going to come through the, uh, uh, portal? Dahlia again came to her aid. And, yes, we're quite sure that it was only those fugly fellows. Uh, however, Luke interjected, should you ever find yourself in paranormal peril again, you have our card. The woman nodded inwardly praying that the hideous beasts who had lately lumbered through the centuries-old limestone caves would be the last monstrous guests of the Prohibition-era nightclub-turned-event venue of which she was the event's director. You mentioned that your SUV is in the shop, Dahlia said, interrupting the woman's silent supplication. May we give you a ride? Oh, no, no. Jody insisted, wagging her smartphone in one hand. I'm heading to the exact opposite direction. I'll just call a car. According to Midwestern custom, however, the detectives repeatedly insisted on providing a ride, while their client repeatedly denied. Unable to change her mind, the supernatural investigators finally shook her hand and strode over to Dahlia's black Beta Romero sedan to wait while Mrs. Taft called a super rideshare. Seeing a blue Corona roll up a few minutes later to collect Miss Taft, Dahlia waved, 
pulled out of the parking lot and wound up the Beta's turbocharged V6 down West 7th. Once safely inside the Suber, Mrs. Taft immediately occupied herself with a twit-face post. What up, friends? I'm pleased to announce that the electrical work forcing our closure since April is finally done. The Wabasha Street Caves will reopen this Sunday with a special evening of music, dancing, and drinks. More details to follow. Thank you all so much for your patience. Like and subscribe. As she hit post, however, the events director came to the unsettling realization that the car had been stationary for an unusually long period. She looked out the window. Outside, the faux castle forming the entrance to the cave still towered over her. The sedan hadn't moved an inch. Unsettled, she looked towards the driver, but found the seat empty. She was shocked. Certain she hadn't heard him leave the car, her right hand instinctively grabbed a bottle of pepper spray in her purse, while her left reached across to unbuckle her seatbelt. As she pressed the button, however, the belt cinched suddenly tighter, hammering the breath from her lungs. With a shriek, she flailed her right arm and emptied the pepper spray into the driver's compartment, to no avail. Instead, the pungent cloud of aerosol bathed the car's interior in a burning mist, causing her to retch and cough. She dropped the canister and went for her phone. As she hit emergency call, however, she was mortified to behold that the interior of the sedan was undulating, rippling, as though it were alive. Her phone called out to 911, and she fumbled the speaker button to talk. As she did so, the cloth and plastic surrounding her spontaneously combusted into a billion baby spiders. The eight-legged terrors tore through the upholstery and burrowed through the glass. She struggled even harder against the seatbelt, but she could not free herself. She froze in fear as the crawling creatures blanketed her and filled her with horror. She recalled being eight years old and discovering a spider's nest underneath the kitchen sink, its thousands of tiny spiders spilling onto her hands and overalls. The same fear that had filled her that day thirty years ago now left her utterly paralyzed. The arachnids swarmed over the events director, their minuscule mandibles biting through her clothes and devouring chunks of flesh beneath. She tried to scream, but the creatures poured down her throat and commenced eating her from within. When first responders finally arrived at the caves, unsure if the gurgling sound reported by the operator was a prank, they found only a pile of chewed-up bones surrounded by shreds of cotton-blend fabric and a cell phone, the penultimate call from which had been made to a one detective, Luke Miller. I am telling you, Sergeant Mike Tomlinson of the Minneapolis Police Department insisted to his colleague as they drove down University Avenue, Luke Miller might be a tad eccentric, but he ain't no killer, that's for sure. Oh yeah, I trust you, yeah, Lieutenant Ben Snyder of the St. Paul PD replied from behind the wheel. Would I ask for your help at 2 a.m. on your night off if I didn't trust you? Oh, no, Mike yawned. Uh, but... But, Snyder continued, this Luke Miller's a former cop, fired for insubordination, now working as a P.I. with an eccentric reputation. Plus, he's got a squeeze on some rich archaeologist nobody seems to know anything about. And, most importantly, he's the last contact of a woman who was, according to the coroner, eaten alive by some sort of insectoids or arachnoids or... Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, Mike said. I know, you know, the lieutenant interrupted. You used to work together with that, uh, Luke Miller. That's why you're here. Like I explained on the phone, you might be more honest with an old buddy than with me. You're a good cop, Mike. And if you think he's not involved, I'll leave him alone. Mike Tomlinson nodded and took another sip of tepid coffee, tasting heavily of the styrofoam in which it swam. Hang on a minute, Snyder announced suddenly. What's that? He frowned and slowed the car. 
Mike Tomlinson looked towards the approaching light rail station. At the entrance to the crosswalk, a tiny, trembling old woman was hunched over her walker, apparently snagged in a seam in the pavement. She wore an old-fashioned prairie dress, the background of the floral print the same ash-gray as her hair, which was drawn into a tight bun. A pair of glasses with oversized lenses rested halfway down her button nose, which emerged from an impossibly wrinkled face. Mike's tenure as a city cop had left him surprised by very little, but in every way this woman seemed entirely out of place. Snyder flicked on the overhead lights and pulled over. That poor thing, the lieutenant lamented as they came to a halt. What in God's name is she doing out here at this time of night? I dunno, Mike replied, but let's just be careful. Careful? Snyder was incredulous. Ain't no more harmless a situation than helping a little old lady across the street. <laughs> what could make a cop feel any better about his job? Hmm? Uh, sure, I guess you're right, Mike admitted. Can you give me a hand? The lieutenant called as the pair exited the patrol car. Oh my, yes, please help, croaked a soft, elderly voice. My golden walker here is stuck in the cement. Oh, that's no problem, no problem at all, Snyder replied kindly, approaching her and placing his hands on the walker. With a smile, the lieutenant went to lift the aluminum frame, but his expression dropped, however, when he found it completely immovable as if it had been set into the concrete itself. He tried to remove his hands, but found them firmly glued to the walker's grips. What the... he exclaimed, looking at the woman's face. As he did, her wrinkled skin turned black and scaly. Her eyes morphed green and slid to either side of her skull as her simpering mouth elongated into a snout. Before Snyder could blink, the lady had transformed into an enormous upright Komodo dragon, its forked tongue flicking menacingly at the terrified policeman. The walker, too, had vanished. Instead, the creature's front claws now gripped Snyder's trembling hands, slashing deep into his flesh. His terrified scream was muffled by the lizard opening its gruesome maw and biting down on the man's head with a sickening crunch. As the creature, no dinosaur, lifted the limp corpse skyward to gulp it down its gullet, Mike finally broke his involuntary statue impersonation, tore into the squad car, revved the engine, and squealed the tires down University Ave. Oh, freaking great! Another giant lizard! Luke lamented as he, Mike, and Dahlia converged in the living room of his petite efficiency on Charles Avenue just an hour later. The detective did not wish to face another reptilian foe after the nearly apocalyptic encounter with the fell dragon Dragoch almost a year before. Hmm, I don't think so, actually, Dahlia rebutted as she paced a tired oriental rug, her slender frame still clad in a diaphanous sable nightgown her raven locks still in curlers. In her right arm, she held open Milburga's Missal, a 7th century magical compendium she'd acquired during the Dragon Saga. Dahlia hoped that the sage text would help to explain the gruesome deaths that sorrowful, still-shaking Mike had just described. Based on the sergeant's account, Dahlia continued, rapidly flipping pages, Snyder's demise indeed hints towards a rip such as a naga or wajet, but Mrs. Taft's remains suggest some sort of mantanoid creature. I think we have a shapeshifter on our hands. Hmm, but which one? Luke and Mike exchanged bewildered glances. Wait, she blurted, making her companions jump as though Luke's sagging sofa was fitted with ejector seats. Did Snyder have any fears or phobias? Um... Mike searched his memory. Come to think of it, uh, he told me once he hated that movie, Cretaceous Park. Said he'd seen it as a kid and it scared the hell out of him. Okay, that must be it, Dahlia exclaimed, stopping on a tattered page of the massive book. Puka, she read out. 
According to Orwin of the Oriole, the last true druid, this most sinister of skin changes is an immortal rite who feeds upon human flesh, clothing itself in a fair form to attract unwitting victims. And here's the important bit. Unlike the Selkie, this demon is not limited to animate forms. It may appear to a weary traveler as a carriage with a fresh horse, or to a hungry laborer as a lavish meal, or to a merchant as a suit of fine clothes. Once the prey has been lured into its trap, the puka transforms into its victim's greatest fear, paralyzing them with terror so that the demon may devour its prey with impunity. Now it says here that the last known puka was driven into the underworld through the portal it brew at Brunei by the Council of Calakea in A.D. 422. Hmm. Dahlia paused to flip through several hundred pages in the codex, eventually pinpointing the cross-reference with her finger. Ah, yes, here it is, the Council of Calakea, a conclave of the twelve most powerful witches in Ireland. Well, uh, if we can wield the missile against Dragodge, Luke said, we should be able to manage this lizard, Granny. Dahlia nodded with a hopeful smile and flipped to the back of the text. Her lips sagged, though, when she found the correct appendix. Well, the good news is that the spell the Council used 1,500 years ago appears entirely extinct. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and the bad news? Well... It can only be performed by twelve skilled sorcerers. Oh, well, she replied, shutting the book with a muffled thud and flopping herself on the couch between Luke and Mike. Well, on the bright side, Luke began, we've already got one. Who? Me? Dahlia pressed. I'm afraid not, love. Divine law forbids me from wielding mortal magic, lest I'm chained in hell for ten thousand years. Yeah, yeah, I remember. But it's not an entirely lost cause, the goddess continued. In the morning, we can hop on Whelp and make some phone calls. Um, Whelp? Luke repeated, confused. Whelp.com, Dahlia explained, short for Witch Help. It's a site with user reviews and recommendations for the best witches and covens in your area. Really, Luke, you've banished the undead, slain dragons, and you don't know about Whelp. Honestly, you're lucky you're unconventionally charming. Unconventionally. So, Mike, Dahlia said, interrupting the detective with a sweet smile and turning to the cop. I think that we should all get some rest. Can call my chauffeur for you if you're uncomfortable driving. Oh, that's all right. I can drive, Mike replied. I just hope my wife don't turn out to be that thing when I get home. So, let me get this straight, Kivi Laveau pronounced skeptically, her ebony fingers tracing the lengthy conjurations in Milberga's missile. You want me and eleven of my coven to help you banish some ancient shape-shifting demon back to the underworld. Is that right? Yeah, Luke replied, slowly, with the realization that he and Dahlia's perception of normal was probably skewed far beyond that of even Welp's top-rated witch. Miss Laveau's coffee-colored irises left the page and silently scanned her prospective clients for any hint of satire or insanity. Oh my frickin' God, yes! She squealed in a manner entirely at odds with the somber, esoteric decor of her Victorian sitting room. Setting the big book beside her on the antique settee, she jumped up with a flutter of her black gown and a clatter of her heavy silver and opaque glass jewelry. Honestly, do you have any idea how long we've been waiting for a job like this? She asked ecstatically of her stunned guests. You would not believe how many haunted houses we get called in to smudge, only to find out it's just radon or carbon monoxide poisoning. And I cannot tell you how many pervos we have to give fake love potions to because they're trying to seduce their secretaries. It's gross. It's enough to make a woman want to finish her master's of library science degree. I can tell you that much. Most excellent, Miss Laveau, Dahlia interrupted, feeling pleased with the young woman's enthusiasm. May I ask how soon you can gather your coven? Hmm, let me see, she replied, pulling out her phone. Yeah, getting all twelve of us together will be a challenge, especially at this time of year, but 
I'll send a group text to my three priests. Each priest, including me, the high priests, coordinate with three witches each, a system we like to call the supernatural squad. <laughs> anyway, I hope Tashka can get a sitter on short notice. Luke's ears pricked up like those of his mutt Shelby when he heard the once familiar, Slavic, diminutive nickname. Um, I'm sorry, but Tashka wouldn't happen to be Natasha Andreva Vinokovra, would it? He asked curiously. Maybe. She's short, curvy, blonde, with big hazel eyes. About thirty years old? Kivi inquired. Luke nodded affirmatively. Yeah, that's her. <laughs> what a small world, Kivi replied. How do you know Tashka? Well, I haven't heard that nickname in years, Luke began. Um, but, uh, she's my ex-wife. Ryan Peterson enjoyed his morning run in St. Paul's Highland Park neighborhood, despite the summer heat. Even at 9 a.m., the August sun beat down heavily. The four beers he'd shared with co-workers the previous night probably hadn't helped his hydration either. So, one mile away from home, the 40-something triathlete's water bottle was already empty. Following a nasty bout of heat stroke as a kid, he always carried extra water, no matter what. He could have kicked himself for being so stupid. Already he could feel the headache beginning to pound in his temples. The sweat that had been dripping down his forehead had stopped. He felt dizzy, the pavement soft under his feet. Lemonade, a tiny voice called from a nearby driveway. Ryan looked ahead to see a trio of adorable little girls set up at a folding table, a big plastic pitcher of lemonade sweating in the sun amid a pile of red plastic cups. <sighs> How much uh, for the lemonade, <clears throat> ladies? <laughs> the runner wheezed between breaths as he approached the stand. Wow, mister, for our first customer? The tallest elfin child chirped as a smaller one filled a red cup with golden liquid and bobbing cubes of shimmering ice. Why, I guess you could have it for free. Oh, thank you so much, Ryan replied with a smile, inwardly relieved as he had no cash. The smallest little girl handed him the cup, which he eagerly drained in one gulp. But, instead of being bathed in a wave of cool sweetness, Ryan's throat felt hot. His mouth tasted of ash. His stomach began to burn as though he'd swallowed a basket of raw habaneros. He looked down at the girls whose dimpled faces merely chirped with laughter. <clears throat> What, what is this? He cried, dropping the cup as the burning sensation inside of him intensified. He fell to his knees on the burning hot asphalt, feeling as though he had red-hot metal in his guts and molten lava in his throat. He looked again towards the girls, but found the spot they'd once occupied now completely empty. However, he could still hear their giggling. No, their cackling. They're mocking him. He stumbled into the street, the world wildly spinning around him. This had to be heat stroke. If he could just get home, everything would be fine. He attempted to start his laden legs into a slow jog, but his muscles seared horrifically. Ryan looked down to behold his entire body wreathed in orange flame, as though his pores were burners on a living propane grill. With desperate screams, he slapped at his blistering skin, attempting to smother the flames, but the blaze only intensified. Molten flesh began to drip from his blackened bones. Ryan pulled out his cell phone, but the device melted in his hands. His vocal cords seared away. The runner collapsed amid a roar of flame and crackling bones. Around 10.30 a.m., neighbor Kelly Schmidt exited her two-story split-level on Edgecombe Road in search of her morning paper, only to find a mound of charcoal in the middle of her scenic byway. A second later, however, she fainted, after her prized Yorkie petunia dove into the pile and emerged with the hip end of a charred human femur.
Three days later, Luke and the four primary priests of Kiwi's coven sat in a ring of richly carved mahogany Renaissance revival chairs around Dr. Harriet, who sat reclining on the floor with Milberga's missile open in her lap, having just read through the Council of Kalakea's incantation. So, our coven forms a magic circle around the puka, but uh, this spell won't actually kill it, right? Asked a lean forklift driver by day, fire priest by night, wearing a slaughterer t-shirt as he pulled his long black mane into a ponytail. That's correct, Albion, Dahlia explained. The first stanza of this conjuration merely paralyzes the puka with fear. The second opens an interdimensional portal through which the terrified creature will run, and, once the doorway is closed, be banished forever. Hmm, I understand that part, a full-time non-profit director, part-time water priest, in a floral jumpsuit said, speaking up, her chocolate irises shimmering brighter than the faux crystal chandelier overhead. But how can this spell scare off a creature who manifests as pure fear? Oh, well, that's just it, Zia, Dahlia clarified. The incantation uses the shapeshifter's own powers against it, encasing it inside a sort of spectral mirror. This forces the puka to behold its true self, a form which is apparently so horrific it compels the skin changer to flee to the safety of the underworld. But how can we be so sure the creature won't just come back, like it did through the caves? Natasha pressed. The ballet instructor and single mother and earth priest sat cross-legged like a pretzel atop her chair's crimson velvet cushion. An excellent point, Natasha. Indeed, the creature emerged into the Wabasha Street Caves through a hellmouth, Dr. Harriet explained a place where the boundary between dimensions is very delicate. I'm sure you've heard of other such locations. St. Patrick's Purgatory, Sunnydale, the Helka Stratovolcano, and the Fengdu Ghost City, for example. Her audience nodded. Human mages sealed most of these infernal gateways aeons ago, she continued, and Dakota shamans certainly did the same here. However, Based on traces of blood, candle wax, and crude runes inscribed on limestone, it seems as though a posse of wannabe Wiccans tried and failed to reopen the door sometime last century. The caves were mostly vacant between the closing of the Castle Royal Nightclub in 1941 and the reopening as a disco in 1972. Luke interjected. During that time, it was a haven for troublesome teens. Indeed, Luke. And whilst these adolescent warlocks failed to open the portal, Dahlia continued, they did manage to weaken the spells keeping it sealed. I believe the supernatural shockwaves triggered by Grendel's grandmother and Dragoch loosened the lost locks, allowing a couple curious ogres to finally burst through the doorway this April. And now, the shapeshifter, when Luke and I slew those beasts, I resealed the portal with spells from the missile. Only someone in possession of this book can undo them, and they'd have to come through me to get it. I'd say that the Hellmouse is closed for good. So, how do we track this demon down? Zia inquired. I mean, Milberga claims it's almost untraceable, and even you two missed it till now. I'm sorry, but more importantly, High Priest of Air Kiwi interrupted, how do we keep it from tracking and eating us? You said its magic exerts a form of mind control. I don't like that. Dahlia gave a knowing nod of her head and reached into a pocket of her indigo romper. We can use these for protection. In her right hand, the goddess held out a dozen-ish penny-sized oblong moonstones, each with a tiny hole drilled at one end through which she'd passed a loop of fine black cord. In her left, she held up an army green plastic compass. I know they look a bit thankful dead, concert, she explained, wiggling the moonstones, but the natural energy of Hecolite coupled with a special, if ghastly, spell will shield us from the puka's mental manipulations. The same treatment will alter the magnet in this compass to seek out the shapeshifter's magic field. 
Okay, I'm sorry, but what makes this spell so ghastly? Keevy pried. Dr. Harriet replied solemnly. I'm afraid it requires boiling the objects in a potion made from the Puka's victim's remains. Ugh. Well, luckily, Luke added in a tone suggesting he did not feel lucky, my cop buddy can sneak us some from the evidence locker. All right, bro, even with all this paranormal paraphernalia, Albin pressed through a disgruntled grimace, where do we even start our search? The room filled with a stumped silence. Okay, the creature is drawn to large masses of people, right? Zia repeated from Dahlia's briefings. Where is there ever a bigger mass of humans in St. Paul than what opens this Thursday? Oh, of course, you mean, Luke said, following her line of reasoning. The Minnesota State Fair, Zia confirmed. Good thinking, Dahlia said. But how do we keep the crowds from breaking the magic circle? How do we confront the puka amid so many people? I'll tell you how, with a little old-fashioned detective work, Luke replied with a sly smile. Dahlia, since you and I can't help with the spell, if anyone gets in the way, we'll pretend to be security for a piece of performance art. I even got a couple of old police uniforms in the office. Two days later, the coven gathered at Gate 16, near the Metro Transit Hub. Around them, tens of thousands of visitors poured out of a ceaseless parade of shuttle buses, each eager to attend the great Minnesota get-together on its opening day. By the time all the coven members and their fake security escort had arrived, it was 10 a.m., and the air was already thick with deep-fat fryer oil, spun sugar, and livestock sweat. Inside the gates, the team struggled to stick together amid the swirling waves of fairgoers. Strollers and shoulders repeatedly crashed into them with docile Minnesotan interjections of, Oh, sorry, dear, or, Oh, geez, let me squeeze past you here. Oh, my God, we are making no progress whatsoever. What if we hopped up on the high ride to get a better view? Keevy suggested, pointing to the miniature alpine cable cars winding their way overhead. Luke looked down at the compass, the plastic discolored from its magical bath in grisly bone broth, the needle merely spun in lazy circles. He shrugged. Maybe it isn't here yet, Zia pondered. Well, in that case, we could check out the butter sculptures while we wait. <laughs> I mean, just a suggestion, Albion said. Or we could get a glass of tiny donut beer, Natasha pitched. Hey, Keevy interjected. You know, my friend's band is playing at the stage over by the vintage tractors. We could grab some roasted corn and check it out. The compass needle, however, forestalled any further suggestions by suddenly stopping its rotation. As the crowd of witches watched, the red tip pointed straight towards the spiraling collection of amusement park rides known as the Massive Midway. All right, everybody, Luke announced. This is it. Make sure you haven't lost your moonstones. After checking that their talismans were indeed still tied around their necks, Luke and Dahlia led the charge into the carnival. Progress, though, was slow. The hundreds of teens quaffing plumes of cotton candy and corn dogs were apparently unfazed by a pair of cops ordering them to make way. Top 40 hits from the 80s boomed while the rollers and hydraulic rams of rides clattered and hissed, making cohesion and communication almost impossible. As they wrestled their way deeper into the midway, the coven was splintered. Before Luke realized it, he had left half the party behind by the time he had come upon the extreme head rush, the midway's newest and baddest roller coaster. There, the compass's needle again wavered. The detective stopped and looked up. Overhead, the skyscraping swirl of steel suddenly softened like warm butter, transforming into a python, the circumference of a city bus. Folks, Luke stammered, pointing, I, uh, I, I think we found it. 
His companions looked up to witness a line of cars plummet down the first drop, just as an immense serpent's head emerged out of the rails, opening its jaws wide. At least twenty riders rocketed down the beast's gullet, their adrenaline-induced screams unaltered by what they assumed was a feature of the coaster. With a satisfied gulp, the monster flicked a forked tongue before melting back into the rails. Amid the thundering music and flashing lights, however, no one else seemed to have noticed. Oh, my dear God, Natasha gasped. Where'd the cars go? Kiwi questioned in a panic. They've been devoured, Luke announced. This place is a friggin' puka buffet. You better get started. I'd love to, but I can't, Luke, the high priest shouted in frustration. Half my coven is stuck in the crowd. It's too late anyway, Dahlia interjected, looking down at the compass. The creature's gone. It's back on the move. After several minutes of regrouping and fighting back through the midway, the coven headed south on Liggett Avenue, the fair bouquet shifting from sword body spray, funnel cake, and hydraulic oil to the sour musk of horses, sheep, and poultry. The team of witches stopped, however, upon hearing a series of screams. Up ahead, an apparently very pregnant young woman had dropped her ice cream cone and was hysterically clutching her basketball-sized belly. Ma'am, a bystander said, running up to her. I'm a doctor. Are you going into labor? I'm not even pregnant, she shrieked. My stomach was flat. I took one bite and... Her fevered explanation was interrupted by horrendous gastric glorping sounds that began to emanate from her gut. As the doctor frantically apologized, suggesting that perhaps she was suffering from a sudden severe milk allergy, the rest of the woman's body began to swell like a balloon, filling with water. The crowd stumbled back in horror as she bloated like an immense screaming tick. The fabric of her athleisure outfit burst its seams, like the casing of an overcooked bratwurst. The blorching of her grumbling guts grew louder every second. Within moments, the poor woman had become a bleeding blimp at least twenty feet in diameter. Help! She gurgled, her face lost somewhere in the swollen ball of flesh. Help! Her body abruptly exploded, cutting off her cries with a deafening boom. The resulting bloody shockwave overturned the ice cream stand and left every surface along the block blanketed in a thick layer of entrails and vanilla ice cream. Unsure whether they had just witnessed a gruesome murder or a macabre marketing ploy, bewildered bystanders fled in terror, wading desperately through the disgusting dessert. Damn it! Dahlia spat amidst the chaos, cleaning her face with a black silk handkerchief. We're never going to chase this thing down without killing half the fairgoers. We've got to lure it into a trap. Sure, but how? Zia inquired skeptically combing ice cream from her black pixie cut. You know what? I think I know, Luke replied, using his cap to wipe the grisly frozen mess from his uniform. This creature, I mean, it could bewitch and eat anybody, but it seems to seek out people who intensely want something. Think about it. Jody was determined to call her own car home, and then Mike's buddy, you know, he really wanted to help that elderly lady. And adrenaline junkies, they live for the rush of the roller coaster. And this poor girl, she looked fit, Kiwi added, gesturing to her ice cream-soaked blouse. Maybe she was desperate for a dessert. Exactly, Luke continued. So one of us needs to want something really, really badly. Luke, I think I have an idea of something that could work. Natasha spoke up after a second. And I think you'll know exactly what I'm about to say. Annie? Yes, the earth priest replied. She's going into first grade this year and I don't have to tell the other parents here how hard that is. How much I wish that she would stay my little girl forever. Okay, Kiwi acknowledged. We have our bait, but this whole security guard shtick is not working. I'm sorry, Luke. But where can we set this trap? Oh, dude, you know what? Albin replied with a grin. I think I have an idea. 
Fifteen minutes later, Natasha leaned against the patio railing of the empty grandstand, watching as a roadie shuffled across the vacant stage, probably setting up for the evening's Steely Dave show. While she waited, the air priest fidgeted with her moonstone pendant as she attempted to build up her wavering confidence. Don't worry, Tashka, your witch has got this. You've got this. All you've got to do is wait. Her train of thought, though, was derailed at the appearance of Annika, her young daughter, standing alone in the aisle between two sections of plaza seating. Natasha peeked down at the compass in her hand. The needle pointed straight towards the girl, confirming that she was the puka in disguise. Ani! she cried in faux shock. Where's Babka? I told Grandma to keep you at home. This is it, Kivi announced from behind the stage, looking through a flap in the fabric that covered the platform's support structure. Let's go! While the coven members crawled out, Luke and Dahlia ran towards the monster's far flank and drew their magical swords, until then hidden in invisible scabbards on their backs. Freya's divine blade, Lufraden, and Luke's sword of adamantine dragon fane, Quellendrakan, were there to discourage the puka from fleeing the magical circle. Between the detective and the goddess, the coven formed a hurried half-circle opposite Natasha and the creature masquerading as her daughter. With a series of apprehensive glances, Kivi swallowed hard and initiated the incantation with a crackling call. Mirror, mirror, fraught with fear, send this creature far from here. Immediately, a torrent of spectral wind blasted from her outstretched hands, engulfing the now crying demon child in a swirling tornado, each which hurriedly repeated the spell the four in Kiwi's air squad releasing similar spirals of wind. Those in Albion's fire squad unleashed four jets of orange flame that merged with the air spells, creating a miniature hurricane of fire. The witches led by Zia fired spouts of water that boiled without evaporating as they merged into the flaming tornado. Finally, Natasha's earth squad sent white lightning bolts from their palms, wreathing the entire magical storm in a web of sparkling, crackling electricity. As the elemental streaks thundered across the floor towards the monster, folding chairs went flying like snowflakes before a plow. As the fearsome tornado swirled around the counterfeit Annika, its cone shape began to collapse and swell outward into a crude sphere. As its shape mutated, the four separate elements composing the cyclone also began to melt and merge. In the center of the sphere, a uniform ring of shimmering silver appeared, slowly expanding towards the top and bottom of the orb, as though an invisible artist were coating it in silver paint. Mommy! The demon supplicated in a warped version of the child's voice. Mommy, please help! Natasha was about to perform the banishing spell herself when she felt a sudden wave of fear and panic rise in her chest. No! Natasha shrieked, her eyes dilating to pools. You won't hurt my little girl! She raised both of her arms and shouted a different incantation, this time in an indecipherable Slavic tongue. From each of her palms, a thick bolt of chartreuse lightning shot across the floor and smashed into the coven's silver sphere with a metallic crash. A strobing flash of light blasted through the event venue as if an electric substation had been hit by a bomb. An entire truss of lights crashed onto the stage with a fusillade of multicolored explosions. In a flurry of sparks, Natasha's magical green beams pushed the other witches back, a dozen straining sorcerers stumbled and slid across the concrete as though they were trying to stop a massive, invisible truck. Tashka! For real! What the fuck? Kivi screamed. It's her moonstone! Dahlia cried, pointing towards the blank space on Natasha's chest where her talisman had formerly lain. There! Luke shouted back, seeing the charm lying on the concrete, halfway between Natasha and the ramp leading up to the grandstand. He realized his ex-wife must have been nervously playing with it, just like when she'd worn her wedding ring on the chain and worked the knot loose. Tosca, it ain't Annie, the detective hollered, sheathing his sword and running towards the talisman. I'm scared, Mommy. 
I'm so scared. The demon cried, its voice a hybrid of the little girls and a demonic monster. Please, help me. Natasha turned one palm towards Luke and shot a green bolt into his chest. With a sharp howl, Luke's body was lifted from the pavement in a hail of folding chairs and collapsed to the ground in a heap. However, the division of Natasha's magic gave the coven a chance to counterattack, forcing the chartreuse streaks back towards Tashka's palms and slowly reformed the silver sphere. Dahlia ran to Luke's limp body. She felt no pulse. Blinking back fearful tears, she kissed his forehead and placed her fingers over the owl tattoo on his right forearm, a charm left on him by the supernatural guardians of the North Woods, the Vatier. She closed her eyes and frantically prayed, calling upon them to grant Luke healing and protection. As the sacred spells flowed from her lips, the detective's body began to glow blue. Dahlia incantated with increasing ferocity, practically screaming into the detective's chest. Suddenly, Luke's body convulsed, his eyes shot open, and he gasped for air. He looked up at the panting Freya. Her gaze instantly explained what had happened. Giving her a faint smile, he stood up, his veins coursing with vatir vigor. Before he'd even taken a step forward, though, Natasha fired another bolt of enchanted energy straight into his chest. This time, though, immortal magic deflected the jet around him as though he were a stone in a rushing river. Please, Mommy. Please help me. I'm coming, sweetheart. Natasha shouted. The stream of fluorescent electricity blasting into Luke grew stronger, slowing his advance. Then he realized how to break the puka's hold. Tash! The detective screamed over the din of dueling sorcery. It's not Annie, and I'll prove it. Please, Mommy, it hurts. Make them stop. Oh yeah, Luke, and how would you know? His ex-wife yelled furiously, intensifying her magical blast. Remember how your mom, she's been teaching her Belarusian, Luke pressed, plodding forward against her witchcraft like a salmon swimming upstream. And now Ani's been saying Fanja instead of awesome. It hurts, Mari, it hurts. The monster interjected, causing the death beam to grow even stronger, almost overwhelming the conjuration that protected Luke's life. Well, the sleuth groaned as the bolt began to burn his shirt. When she taught Ani the word that describes a mother's warm, loving care, do you remember that she quit calling you mommy and started saying, Piascolta? Natasha cried, her eyes focusing again. She stopped blasting her emerald death spell and turned to confront the monster. A freed Luke sprinted to the moonstone and snatched it off the ground. Yes, Piascota, please, it hurts. Before the monster could re-bewitch Natasha's mind, though, Luke wrapped the charm around her throat and tied it firmly in place. The puka screeched with rage, its spell broken. Unable to retake control, the doppelganger of Annie began to melt as though it were a wax statue placed too close to a fire. Natasha merely shook her head, blinked her eyes, and shouted, Mirror, mirror, fraught with fear, send this bastard far from here. This time, purple lightning exploded from her palms and met with the partial orb conjured by the straining coven. Her power seemed to triple the strength of the spell as it amalgamated with the other bolts of magic. At the receiving end, the creature cried out in horror as the silver mirror sphere slowly grew to encase it. Portal, portal, mystic door, Kivi squeaked when the globe appeared complete. Take this fiend forevermore! The team braced for a supernatural squall to wash over them as the portal opened. Several seconds passed. Nothing happened. Several witches began to bleat with sorrow and fatigue. What's wrong? Albion cried, his clothing soaked with sweat. It's David! One of Kiwi's squad squeaked with pain. He's collapsed! I can't hold on much longer either! Zia wheezed, arms shaking, her almond eyes bloodshot. But if we stop now, it'll escape! Kiwi called out, falling to her knees. And, let's not forget, most likely... Kill us all, 
Albion said, his long hair plastered over his face. Luke, Natasha cried, try casting the spell. The Vatir magic's all worn off, he replied hopelessly, and I'm no witch. I wouldn't be so sure, his ex-wife shot back. At least, give it a try, for Christ's sake. Looking from Natasha to Dahlia and shrugging his shoulders, Luke raised his arms in limp desperation and called out the words of the incantation. A moment later, his hands went numb. Then, twin bolts of purple lightning suddenly shot from the detective's palms, making each arm feel as though he'd jammed a finger into an electrical socket. His mystical bolts of energy joined the rest, and the silver sphere's remaining sliver of empty space finally sealed. A blood-curdling wail issued from the creature as a whirling typhoon of spectral energy filled the event center. Lights, seats, speakers, playbills, trash, and dust swirled around the shining orb. Inside it, the shapeless monster shrieked as the energy cyclone picked it up and pulled it through the air. Portal, portal, mystic door, Kiwi screamed again, the coven and Luke following along like a group of third graders, stumbling through the Pledge of Allegiance. Take this fiend forevermore! A deafening clap of enchanted thunder shook the venue. Across from the surging cyclone, the supernatural doorway began to open. A ring of dense, black vapor swirled, defying physics as it wafted perfectly perpendicular to the ground, immune to the tornado of folding chairs. In the middle of the smoke ring, the air seemed to condense and coagulate, taking on the appearance of mercury. And then the gateway opened wide. The silver sphere, with its long tail of purple lightning, shot towards it like a pinball, the horrifying monster in tow. The creature crossed the magical threshold with a spectral sonic boom, and then the entire supernatural spectacle dissipated into a lightning-streaked singularity, which flashed and rumbled like a summer storm before vanishing entirely into the ether. For a moment, the crew stood motionless in the silent, ruined grandstand. Before they could sigh with relief, however, the exhausted team jolted with terror as the bleachers behind them suddenly filled with thunderous applause. Unknown to Luke and company, a crowd had gathered, assuming that the flashing lights and whirling debris was a rehearsal for that night's classic rock revival. Wait, okay, so how long have you been a witch? Luke asked his ex-wife as they sat in her living room, Annika playing near their feet. Mommy's always been a witch, his daughter said, pausing construction on a tower of mega blocks to interject. She's right, Natasha agreed with a smile. I was aware of my gift before I could even walk. I vaguely recall sending mashed potatoes splattering against the wall of our apartment in Minsk without even touching the bowl. However, neither of my parents possessed this gift, and while many practice powerful magic without it, they never tried, for fear of the KGB arresting them as subversives or dissidents. I guess it wasn't until I was in middle school in Miami that my mother was able to connect me with a local coven. During my time there, Miss Garcia and her priests helped me grow in both power and knowledge. So how'd I never find out? Luke pressed, curious how such a secret could remain hidden through seven years of marriage. Well, my experience with witchcraft grew, she explained. So did my love for dance, but, you know... I started when I was ten, extremely late for someone pursuing a career in ballet. I had to work ten times as hard as the other girls, and often had to skip coven meetings for rehearsal. And then, when I was thirteen, I told another dancer in my studio that I was a witch. In that cutthroat world, she turned my innocent admission into a weapon and convinced everyone that I was a freak. They called me a hag and a harpy whenever our teacher wasn't near, and finally, this girl, Miranda, called me Soviet she-devil, and I lost it. I slammed her against the wall without even leaving fourth position. Unfortunately, Miss Petrova saw the whole thing and expelled me, half in punishment and half in fear. 
The other ballet studios in Miami found out what happened, and I was blacklisted. Anyway, sick of the heat, my father used this turn of events to accept his company offer for a higher-paying gig in Minneapolis. In turn, I decided to give up magic so that I could be a normal dancer. Eventually, you and I met. I kept my past a secret so that you, then a perfectly rational police cadet, wouldn't reject me. Luke nodded, unsure of how his 19-year-old self would have reacted to such an admission. But then, Natasha continued, when Grendel's grandmother attacked our car, I was helpless to protect myself or Annie. As it was trying to peel the roof off, I knew that there were spells that I could have employed to shield us, but I couldn't perform them. I couldn't remember. So, after you banished the beast, I decided it was time to rekindle my power. After I found Kiwi and started practicing again, I realized Ben wasn't the right partner for me, so I broke it off. Funny enough, I've been able to meet this girl, Gianna, on Welp, and we've started to see each other. Her coven wasn't the right fit for me, but she and I really hit it off. Well, that's awesome, Tashka, Luke began. I'm excited to... His cell phone loudly interrupted, though. Oh, hello, Luke, Dahlia pressed from the other side of the line. We've got a case out on Grey Cloud Island. I'm heading there now. When I arrive, I'll drop a pin so you can meet me. What? Grey Cloud Island? Luke moaned. But I'm way up in... Sorry, darling, she cooed. This one can't wait. Bye. As the line went dead, Luke looked up apologetically. It's all right, Natasha assured him. Uh, all right, but before I go, Luke pried urgently. I have to know what happened last Thursday. Do I have the gift, too? Yes, replied Natasha. She paused for a moment before continuing with a coy smile, but not for magic. Like I said, even those without it can conjure powerful magic. However. If you ever need my help again, I'm here for you, Luke. That's good to know, Luke said, smiling. At this rate, he stopped, suddenly, to stare wide-mouthed at his daughter. And Annie's here for you, too, Natasha interrupted, giggling as the child lifted a red plastic brick high into the air without moving a finger. Wasn't that tasty, listeners? I'm satisfied. I hope you are. Screw serial drama. Keep it episodic. That's what I love. When the monster of the week shows up and says, Hi, I'm a monster. And then you kick its ass. That's what kind of story we had tonight. So, let us give our thanks to D. Zane Davis and the fine story with which he has blessed us, Detective Luke Miller and the Perilous Puka, which I have just read for you and you have enjoyed. And who am I? I'm your host, Michael Strand, signing off for this evening alongside your beautiful publisher, T. Martin Krauss, and your author, D. Zane Davis. Quick shout out to our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for supporting us. Um, search Six Emperor Serpent on Patreon if you want to get early access to this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Six Semper Serpent. As for the music, check out Lackey Inspired. His music is all over the net, but I very much enjoy it. Thanks, Lackey. Okay, folks. I'll see you next time. Like, subscribe, share, leave a review, all of that kind of stuff. But whatever you do, please do it in good health and take care of yourself in these difficult times. Cheers and goodbye for now. Thank you.